Welcome to another episode of Vision of Zion. I have again on the phone, Sean White. Good morning, Sean. Morning, Craig. So what are we talking about today? I'd like to start off with Isaiah 5. This is a... We're actually, we're actually going chronological now, or in sequential order a little <laughs> bit, right? Yeah, and I'm going to, you're going to see us start to mix in more from the Dead Sea Scroll verses, which I found very, very interesting in trying to understand uh, when we get stuck on different meanings and things. Maybe I could put a plug in about the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, if it's okay. There's a lot I could talk about on this, but I'll just be brief. Is that all right? Yeah, that'd be great. So the Dead Sea Scrolls, I can't get the exact year, but I'll get pretty close right around the time that Israel be, uh, declared itself to be a nation in the, uh, around 1940, it was around 1946, 1948. 1948 was the year that they established themselves and made that declaration. But somewhere in that time period, there were some Bedouin uh, sheep herders, I believe, goat herders maybe, I'm sorry, that some young men were throwing rocks in these caves and they heard something break went up there and found these jars that contained scrolls. And that led to one of the most significant, if not the most significant archeological find in the 20th century. I mean, King Tutankhamun's tomb was certainly one of the top ones as well in the 1920s, but this one in its significance and knowledge and import, uh, I think eclipses it. And I've had scholars and read scholars who said that. And all I wanted to say about it was that of these scrolls that were found and among them, the most quoted or copied book that was found in those jars was the book of Isaiah. And if I recall correctly, there were around uh, 50 copies, 50 plus copies of the book of Isaiah or portions of it found among these scrolls. And uh, I want to say another couple of things. If I remember correctly, and I'm not researching this before this podcast, this is all off the top of my head, so we can go back and fill in details. But as I remember correctly, the Bible was translated into Greek. The entire Bible, the Hebrew, of course, was what the original uh, Old Testament or Tanakh was written in. And the, the earliest known copy was the Septuagint, which is the book of the Bible put into Greek. And as I recall, uh, I think that copy was around 1100 or 1000 AD. It was as far back as anyone could go. And when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls and did the testing and all the things necessary to date, date these documents, these documents dated to uh, if I remember correctly, between 200 BC and like 200 AD or some some range, but much, much older. And they were written in Hebrew. People who speak Hebrew could literally go back, can go back to the original scrolls and they can read for their, for their own eyes that these are, you know, very old documents. And further, they found that there were amazing consistencies between the old documents and the recent and the most recent uh recently found versions so it kind of authenticated 
the uh, originality of it, the um, talent and ability and faithfulness of the transcribers to bring it to our time. But as you're pointing out, Sean, these documents, they have some important differences as well. And I, I have not gone through and compared all of them uh, by any means. I know of one big one uh, that I'll talk about sometime, because when Joseph Smith went through the Bible, he did something amazing uh, with one of the verses in the book of Isaiah, but we won't talk about it today. But anyway, just want to lay some foundation that the, what you're going to do when you say you're going to compare the what we have in the Bible to what's in the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is really, you know, great information. I'm looking forward to hearing about it. Today in Isaiah 5, where the only place that it changes slightly is in verse 24 through 30. We can bring okay. those up as we do that. So let's read the head note here from, uh, it's uh, in this chapter, Isaiah is giving an overview of a two-year period of tribulation. So we'll proceed with me reading the verse and then, Let's hear what uh, you've been impressed with each of these verses or set of verses. So, verse 1 of Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved a, a love song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on the fertile brow of a hill. Here in chapter 5 of Isaiah, we have <clears throat> excuse me, a story of the vineyard. Isaiah take, makes it into a song so the people can remember it. Books were not readily available in that day. Many cultures used song so that important things could be remembered by everyone, not just the wealthy that could have a scroll or a book. The vineyard represents the people here on earth that came here to obtain a physical body. Stories and comparisons to taking care of a vineyard occur in many scriptural references, like Jacob 5, and 6 of the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants 21, Doctrine and Covenants 33, Doctrine and Covenants 43, Doctrine and Covenants 101, and 2 Nephi 15 and Matthew 20. So you can see that very often uh, that this storyline of the vineyard is used um, to help portray things that are going on on the earth. So the vineyard represents people or God's people or the people that God's trying to work with, right? Yeah. I love the fact that they use songs to try and remember. Uh, I've heard of things from other cultures, uh, from Africa, cultures among the Native Americans, such as the Hopi, doing things like this, rituals and dances, to be able to remember their genealogy. So this is fascinating that they make sense they would use music to remember these things. <clears throat> By the way, just a little plug, there's a really good movie based on a book by Chaim Potok. That first name is spelled C-H-A-I-M. Potok is P-O-T-O-K. He came uh, to BYU when I was there. He writes these great books, and he he wrote a book called The Chosen, which became a movie starring Robbie Benson. And a lot of the, uh, I hope I'm saying it right, Hasidic Jewish traditions are uh, woven into the story. It's really a great uh, movie worth watching, The Chosen with Robbie Benson and based on Heim Podock's book. And you get some of this flavor of the passion for the Tanakh, uh, for uh, studying the Talmud, uh, the, um, the some of the techniques they use to remember and learn 
really really cool really cool uh, illustration that takes place uh during the time of world war post-world war ii when uh, uh jewish people all over the world are demanding and asking for uh the creation of a jewish state and the more traditional uh jews believe that it should be only set up by messiah and uh but there's uh, there's this political movement of course we know how it, how it culminates so it creates a great tension in the story but you get a look inside of of this uh people who came from i think russia led by uh, uh this rabbi or what they call i think a rebbe because that's higher than a rabbi anyway great story and you get if you get a feel for this uh, passion uh how they remember things and and study so hard okay sorry about that <laughs> the next verses next verse verse two he cultivated it clearing it of stones and planted it with choice vines he built a watchtower in its midst and hewed it hewed for it a wine press as well then he expected it to yield grapes but it produced wild grapes in the stores of the vineyard god is the vineyard owner he created a beautiful earth for us to live in he placed Adam and Eve as the choice vines sent here to start the vineyard. He set up a watchtower. This represents the carekeeper of the vineyard, a watchman, one who is entrusted to do all the things that the owner of the vineyard wants so that he will have a successful vineyard. Here in Ezekiel 3.17, Son of man, have I made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word of my mouth and give them warning from me. In this verse, we see that God is calling Ezekiel a watchman. Today, in the, the man in the watchtower represents the prophets, which God has sent to steer the people towards righteousness and warn us of wickedness that might entrap us. Wild grapes, referenced in this verse, are sour and described as bitter-tasting, these wild grapes are not good for making wine because the sugars within the grape did not get the right nutrients to mature. The grapes or olives in variants of the story represent the people of the earth that die before they reach their full potential in God's eyes. The wine press is symbolic of our temples. A wine press is a place where a mature, fully ripened grapes are taken, and as a, a temple represents, a, is a place where mature and fully committed people go to receive more information and to be added upon too. So we can kind of con connect here with the wild grapes. Mm. You know the analogy of a watchman. Uh, it's it's uh, in Ezekiel. It's also in DNC 101 when the Lord gives a parable about the redemption of Zion, and the people were supposed to build a tower and place a watchman. Uh, the biography of Boyd K. Packer, I think it's the subtitle is called "Watchman on a Tower," so that fits with this prophet's being, you know, at on the watchman on the tower. And uh, yeah, Ezekiel's being warned. He's a, he is a watchman and and has to do his job. And uh, I thought about when you were talking about the wine press, where the where the, Jesus said he tread the wine press alone. 
So yeah. nobody was more fully committed, I suppose, Sean, to fulfilling the Lord's plan. And and only he was chosen to do that. In a way, he directly gives the further light knowledge to the earth, you know, because it's all about coming back and being at one with Christ, being using the atonement, so being at or I mean at one, which is atonement, being at one with Christ, and so only he could tread the wine press. All right, let's go to the next verse, verses three and four. Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and you men of Judea, please judge between me and the vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it produce wild grapes? God is asking, what more could I have done to raise a righteous people? I tried everything, and yet they did not mature into a righteous people. So this obviously sounds very similar to the dilemma in Jacob chapter 5 in the Book of Mormon, when Jacob is quoting Zenos, who was a Jewish prophet, uh, and the Lord is, same thing, he's got this vineyard, uh, he's trying to make it productive, or you know, spiritually productive, spiritually righteous, obviously, and the fruit keeps getting corrupted and and he asked that same question in in jacob five is what more could i've done for my vineyard i've done everything i've uh, including grafting branches moving into different parts of the vineyard which which refers to putting them in different countries geographically you know among the gentiles together by themselves he's tried it all what more could he have done so really a powerful question and when we should be thinking about how hard the Lord is working to help us achieve righteousness. Yeah. Okay, verse 5. Let me now inform you what I will do to my vineyard. I will have its hedge removed and let it be burned. I will have its wall broken through and let it be trampled. God says I will remove the hedge from around the vineyard and let it be burned. The hedge symbolizes protection from unwanted intruders. This symbolizes God removing protection, which means God will be taking peace from the earth. Let it be burned. The, that phrase the, is that the invaders will burn the cities. The wall symbolizes their military might. Without a wall or military protection, the invaders will trample upon us. This idea ties back into uh, Isaiah 19.22. Jehovah will smite Egypt, and by smiting it, by heal it, they will turn back to Jehovah, and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In summarizing verse 5 and 6, God protects protection being removed, which will allow the king of Assyria to invade the promised land. This conjures up a lot of impressions for me. Uh, that last one, when he removes the hedge, is we really don't appreciate how much the righteous people around us or the Lord in general blesses us in spite of our weaknesses. And when that spirit is removed, we just don't appreciate how, how dark and how lost we're going to feel if we have that pulled from us. Individually, we can keep it, but as a people, 
uh, to lose that protection as a vineyard, we don't we don't even can't even imagine what that's like. Um, there's a verse <clears throat> in the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord reminds one of the people Joseph is uh, told to give a prophecy to. I think it's Mar uh, Oliver Cowdery. It might be Martin Harris. When he said, you know, if you want to know what hell's like, just remember the time that I took the spirit away. That's just a taste of what it's like. And uh, the Savior, uh, Sean, I believe, had to experience that in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was left alone for a period before the angel came and comforted him. I think he had to experience what it was like for people to have no spirit with them. The Book of Mormon describes um, ferocious people, both in the among the Jaredites in the Book of Ether, and then as the as the Nephite Lamanite civilizations wind down, and Mormon and Moroni are recording the savagery where the spirit had completely been taken from the people. We we take the hedge for granted. We really really do. But there's going to get a point where it's going to be removed, and that's when the burning occurs both the physical burning and then the, the earth's renewal uh, when just after the uh, the rapture, when people are caught up, the, the remaining righteous are caught up, the earth gets wow. burned according to the book of Revelation. So it's it's going to start small. It's going to, it's going to have its natural, um, its natural end. I often think too of the 40 day fast, uh, the Savior went through, and and Satan tempted him, and and things there. And uh, I know that was just to strengthen him, to give him more power, and understand how Satan works. You know, so that would must have been a, a very very hard thing on that forty day fast. It makes sense that the Lord would be sensitized to that before His ministry began. Makes total sense. Because he had such compassion for people during his entire ministry, he would always, always make time for one person and one situation. Uh, really amazing. Yeah. Verse six, I will make it, I'm sure that's referring to the vineyard, I will make it a desolation. It shall neither be pruned nor hoed, but briars and thorns shall overgrow it. Moreover, I will forbid the rain clouds to rain on it. And um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, it reads, I will lay it a wasteland. It won't be pruned or hoed, but it will grow briars and thorns. And I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. So interesting, just a slight variation there. Um, this promise by God to make America a desolate or the promised land is a lot better term because, you know, we've got two promised lands, one old and one new together too. The thorns and the briars completely rule the vineyard. The thorns and briars are in this sense unwanted people that do nothing to build up the kingdom of God. The rain clouds that do not rain indicate that God will not give the needed nutrients to survive. And, you know, when God's not around, it seems like 
you know, things that don't need God's word survive and and grow. I mean, I think of the dandelions and the weeds on the lawn when things become dry and desolate for the needs of the grass. The weeds are easy to overtake it and thrive where the grass couldn't thrive. There's a lot of similarities, uh, both in the scriptures between America and Israel, or New Jerusalem and Old Jerusalem areas, because anytime you have a promised land where the Lord has said, this is set apart for a righteous people, you're going to have um, problems if you turn your back on the Lord, because lands that are lands of promise are also lands of cursing. As long as you adhere to the covenants, worship the Lord, the land is blessed. If you don't, it's taken away. And uh, that's why I think there's a lot of validity to your comparing Isaiah's verses to America, which I think also apply to the land of Israel. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, let's go to verse 7. The vineyard of Jehovah of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah is his cherished grove. He expected justice, but there was injustice. He expected righteousness, but there was an outcry. Interesting in um, the Dead Sea Scrolls it reads, For the vineyard of Yahweh of armies is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. This verse is now turning back to the first verse, describing exactly who the story of the vineyard represents. God expected the people to mature and to treat each other as he had treated them. Instead, the people grow up in the ways of Lucifer and sought power and dominion over others, even if it meant killing your neighbors. Well, the Lord is definitely justified in what he's doing to the vineyard because of all of this. And on that note, let's go to these woes of warning. Uh, as you pointed out here, Sean, there are seven woes. Let's go through each one. Verse 8, Woe to those who join house to house, and link field to field until no place is left, and you are restricted to dwell in the centers of the land. I looked up the meaning of woe because, you know, today we don't use this very often, and uh, we often think of it as uh, on a horse or working with an um, oxen or something like that. It means, the, the word woe itself means great sorrow will come. So great sorrow will come to those who live in homes stacked on top of each other and are wall-to-wall. Today, we readily see this in the new 10- or 15-minute cities being built. God is warning us not to buy into this idea of moving the people from the rural areas into the cities so the government control large blocks of farmland as one unit. And we... You do a little research and see what Russia did in, um, and what China has done uh, in different lands where they've tried to do this, starting back in Stalin with Russia, in getting the people off the lands. And he, he killed a horrific amount of people. And then when they did start their farms, they were unsuccessful. They thought, oh, it's just a stupid farmer. Anybody can do this, and we can do it a lot better. The crops didn't grow. 
and they had further starvation and further problems. And so he's given us a warning not to buy into this idea. And so the modern version of this is the 15 or 20 minute cities you referred to. And for those, if you haven't heard this term, there's proposals being made where you live in a city and everything you need is within 15 or 20 minutes of where you live. You don't have to leave town. You don't have to go anywhere. Everything is brought into the city and you're there. And they're using uh, the environment and the so-called man-made blame for changes in the environment to justify corralling people up in these small areas where they're not allowed to leave except under you know extreme circumstances you can see that uh, the where the prison in salt lake was the point of the mountain that was now being moved is being made into a 15-minute city the laws and such have been made here in america to where you do not receive highway funding if you do not build high density housing and so they're being built all over the place. England has experimented with them, and it's using them to a degree over there and building more of them today. Uh, there's a track of land just in Kanab that was recently bought, and they're building on it, and watch is the plant of one of these 15-minute cities in Kanab. And uh, the list just goes on and on with the way some new uh, laws were made. So this is Isaiah being warned, hey, you should avoid those situations. Next verse, verses 9 and 10. Jehovah of hosts spoke this in my hearing. Surely many buildings shall lie desolate, large and fine houses unoccupied. A ten-acre vineyard shall yield but one bath, a homer of seed, but an ephtah. After the people are removed from the rural areas, many buildings shall lie desolate large and fine houses will be unoccupied the invaders and earthquakes will destroy many cities if one gathered all the grapes from a 10-acre farm it would yield only six gallons of wine which is equal to a bath as they gather the seed crops like wheat cumin and so forth they are only getting one-tenth of the normal yield this is symbolized by the phrase, a homer of seed, but an epath. Forgive us for mispronouncing that. An epath and a homer represents a unit of measure, and epath is one-tenth of a homer. This idea of moving people from the farms to the cities was tried, as we mentioned earlier, by Stalin with total failure. I looked up the numbers, actually, on the number of people that died during um, that great starvation. They had seven to 10 million people starved to death as they tried to, they were trying to get control of the people and take control of the cropland and wipe out all the political enemies because farmers, which were nearer and dearer to God, um, were political enemies to this new system. It's so sad that we have overlooked these numbers and forgotten how many people actually died in Russia during this time period. Yes, and this is very well documented. It's easy to find books about that era when they decided to completely commit to Marxism in 
Russia and the the untold numbers of people who died and starved. Uh, it was not just the plan, it was also the timing because the weather went real bad and boy, they worked those peasants to death. They really did. And what they expected, it didn't work. There's, I was just reading about this, Sean. I wow. think I was re- I was listening to a podcast by uh, Jordan Peterson, who, who is very uh, well-versed in what happened in Russia. And then he pointed to some books, I think, or I went to some books and found all this information out. It's, it's very, it was very tragic. And that was all things going on, you know, before, uh, you know, before world war two and more, even more atrocities occurred in Russia. So, all right, let's go to verses 11 and 12. Woe to those who go after liquor. As soon as they arise in the morning, who linger at night parties inflamed by wine, there are harps and lyres, or maybe that's leers, an instrument, drums, flutes, and wine at their banquets. But they regard not what Jehovah does, nor perceive his hands at work. And once again, what was God saying? Great sorrow will come upon those that are addicted to substances and have no place for God in their life. It's just, uh, you know, whenever I feel like God says, whoa, there's something I think you need to just really wake up and go, oh my gosh, I need to pay attention. I've got to, you got to listen because surely what he's warning against will come to pass. It's not like maybe it'll come to pass. It will come to pass. And maybe we use uh, substance abuse as a distraction from attuning ourselves to God. And also the music I thought was interesting, partying music, uh, you know, alcohol or other substances. Very interesting. I and used to be a, be a welding inspector and worked in welding shops and things, manufacturing shops. And the music with the deep low beat, when you finally, when I finally started listening to the words and everything, I brought it to the attention of the owners because it was talking about going out and actually killing your employer or killing those around you. And I was shocked. The beat of the music was so overpowering and everything that many people didn't even listen to the words. When I started to listen to the words and things, it was so used for Lucifer's purpose in killing those around you. I was shocked. Boy. Let's go to verse 13 now. Therefore, my people are taken captive for want of knowledge. Their best men die of famine. Their masses perish with thirst. God's children awaken to the fact that they cannot hear God's voice for themselves. Their honorable men are famished. As referenced in the verse, symbolizes leaders who are so out of touch with God that everything they try fails. The general public has been so focused on getting ahead, and there is nowhere to work. They are thirsting to know what God is going to is doing at this time. We'll see in a later chapter of Isaiah, where after their financial crisis hits them, and they are set in great distress, that they often turn to mediums, witchcrafts, and soothsayers. And what they're doing is they're trying to pay for somebody 
that can hear God's voice and tell them what God wants in their lives because they've been away from God for so long. But once again, it doesn't work because they're turning to where they can pay somebody that they think can hear God, not turning themselves. That's that hunger for the word of God and nothing, nothing can satisfy that hunger or thirst than the actual word of God. But sometimes we try the easy way and the easy way is not the best way. It's usually the worst way. Um, there's these things, revelation and getting God's uh, help come from, you know, principles of righteousness and striving and it's it's laid out so clearly, but sometimes you try and circumvent that or or supplant it or replace it. Verse 14, Sheol becomes ravenous, opening its mouth insatiably. Into it descend their elite with the masses, their boisterous ones and revelers. In this verse, as he references Sheol quite a bit throughout, the soul represents hell or the bottomless pit where Lucifer and those third that chose not to get bodies dwell. This is where, at a certain point in this three-year overview, the pit will be opened where Lucifer and that third are dwelling because they were once captured and set there to allow us to see the difference in good and evil and make choices. But when this pit is opened, it's referenced in Revelations 9, Verses 1 through 12, they are allowed to hurt everything that doesn't have a seal upon its forehead, everybody that doesn't have a seal upon their forehead of Christ. And they also give word that they cannot hurt the grass, the trees, or the green things. And so this is, you know, going back to we just got to have that relationship with Christ and relationship with our Heavenly Father to hear their words to avoid these things, to avoid this great tribulation. It sounds like there comes a time when the Lord permits Satan and his followers to have and exercise complete control over those who are not a part of God or who have, you know, uh, it says in the Book of Mormon that we get bound with, you know, chains eventually and our master is satan and he can have he has full control and take us where we don't want to go and but because if we have listened to him and bought into him then he owns us and exercise and this is to me him exercising ultimate control taking us to a place that we don't want to go if we're not with god you know even the we just can't imagine the protection that we now receive <clears throat> just as being born under a covenant or being born in a lineage that goes back to Jerusalem and the blessings that have come upon us through those lineages and blessings clear back into Israel, giving his sons blessings and things to go forth. And so when God removes his hand of protection from us, we have no idea really what that's going to feel like and how that could be torturous upon us. Well, hopefully we, we won't let ourselves get to that point where we have to be shown, but obviously some will. Yeah. Verses 15 and 16. Mankind is brought low when men debase themselves, causing the eyes of the high-minded to be downcast. But Jehovah of hosts will be exalted by a just judgment. 
the holy God show himself holy by his righteousness. I wasn't uh, familiar with the word debase, and so I looked it up and said, when they lose their position, their worth or their value. So when mankind is brought low, when men debase themselves. So it's just uh, so forewarning. Now the next phrase, causing the eyes of the high-minded to be downcast. The high-minded indicates exalted or aloof over others. Through God removing his hand of protection over America, a reversal of circumstances occurs. God will use his righteousness. We need to pay attention when he uses this word righteousness to serve just judgments upon the wicked. The word righteousness is a code word for his servant that prepares the way for Christ to return. So, yeah, just mark in the back of your minds when you see this in Isaiah, pay attention to the word righteousness because he's describing this servant. And you can add up this and many other things to see the identity of this servant and who he is because it's for each one of us to find in our own hearts and get our own testimony. The Lord will announce his presence at a certain point. But um, if we're not prepared to hear it, it'll go right above our heads, and we will not be ready for it. Okay, verse 17. Then shall his sheep feed in their pasture, and proselytes eat in the ruins of the affluent. God is likening the people of the earth that can hear his voice to sheep. Those that can hear his voice inherit the ruins of the high-minded and affluent that did not humble themselves. That reminds me of the parable the Savior taught where there was a, a feast for the bridegroom and everybody got invited, the high and mighty ones anyway, so-called friends, and no one showed up. So he went out, went out onto the streets and brought in strangers and, and the poor, and they became the uh, recipients of the feast. Let's go to verse 18, verses 18 and 19. There's the word woe again, another woe. Woe to those drawn by sin, by vain attachments, hitched to transgression, like a trailer, who think, let him quickly speed up his work, so we may see it. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel soon come to pass, and we will know. Great sorrow will come to those who are drawn to sin by vain attachments. He is describing those that have put worldly things they have acquired above their relationship with God. They are bound to these things like a trailer. They taunt God, saying, hurry up and show us a sign so that we will truly know it is the last days. It just doesn't ever work to wait till the last minute and to not cast away our addictions our attachments, the things that we have brought pride unto ourselves with and say you're going to change overnight. It just doesn't work. Yeah, I'll change and I'll work on myself the minute I know the last days are here. I'm going to I'm going to party it up. I'm going to do whatever I want. But then as soon as I get the sign, then I'm going to quickly get into line and, and get ready for the Lord. That's uh, that's the that's procrastination. And boy, we think we're going to be able to some people they can pull it off. And just wait, but uh, 
I think that's, Sean, why the Lord doesn't tell us when he's coming exactly. We have signs, we have hints, we have nothing specific. But, you know, to those who are unprepared, he's like a thief in the night. So this the strategy of postponing and just waiting to the last minute is, is not going to work. Uh, I heard a joke a long time ago, this old lady sitting on a porch of her house. She's got this big book in her lap, and she's flipping through the pages like a madwoman. And someone comes up and says, what are you doing? She says, well, this is my Bible, and I'm cramming it for my final. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, folks. It doesn't work that way. In the New Testament, I think it's a great one, in Mark uh, chapter 8, verses 11 to 12. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall be no sign given to this generation. And in reality, you know, here's an example of this type of person. You know, give us a sign uh, when we've been given signs all along. We've been given all these scriptures and everything. And here are these Pharisees who are above everybody else and, and wise beyond their years, and their people take care of them and everything. And they're... They're asking for a sign. <laughs> uh, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not all that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father. Then there shall be many in that day which shall say, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name the many wonderful works? And then I will say unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I don't know how I remembered that, but that's off the top of my head. That's Matthew 7. Must have been a seminary wow. scripture that I learned a long time ago. <laughs> but that's, that's it right there. That's pretty yeah. close anyway. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's go to verses, uh, verse 20. Woe to those who suppose what is evil to be good and what is good evil. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. They make bitterness sweet and sweet bitter. Man, does that not apply to our day? But go ahead. Great sorrow will come to those who suppose that evil to be good and what is good to be evil. It's an interesting world we live in today. I often think back myself to life in the 70s and many things that we once thought were pornography images and things are now a part of normal day life. I can remember my parents, don't look at that sign, don't look at that. It's pornography. And today it's just normal, everyday art of speech. Words that are you know, that we used to say that were terrible and damning, we would get our mouths washed out as kids with soap uh, for many of the words that, are, words that are now commonplace today. From personal experience, I found the best way soap was the worst, and ivory was a lot better with a little more mild and even flavor. <laughs> <laughs> I know I had my mouth washed out with soap when I was, I had to be younger than seven because it was before my mother passed away but i i got that once i don't know what brand it was um uh, what was that you what was that red brand uh anyway yeah not not good stuff but i didn't get to have two samples one was enough but yeah those were those were the days uh you had to be careful what you said uh, i remember sampling at least three or four brands <laughs> <laughs> Well, to go a little broader than just that, um, how many things today do we say that are good or evil? How many things? 
and that evil things are good. I mean, everything's being flipped around. I, 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 we could go down a list of things, and historically, we can point to things in science, in, in government policy, in policies of uh, government agencies that have been completely disproven and flipped on their ear, 180-degree turn from what we were taught when we were younger. Time after time after time, I heard someone make a list of things that we've gotten wrong over over decades. And today, so much uh, of what uh, we've been led to, what, that we know to be fundamental truths of the gospel are being continually challenged and flipped around. This truly is the, the day when uh, things that are evil are called good and good things are evil. You know, saving the planet at the expense of killing millions of people. Really? That's that's what we're going to do. We're going to kill millions and maybe billions of people because of certain policies uh, with no regard to human life whatsoever. We do it already, uh, but it's it's gonna it's getting it's getting to a point where it's gonna be worse, all in the name of being good and doing good. I could remember how in high school in the 70s and stuff, that it was so important to be morally clean and to not, you know, sleep with somebody before you're married. And it's become so commonplace today, like, well, that's just a need, a biological need you have, and we look the other way on this. We look the other way on this sin, but yet it's very clear in the Ten Commandments and what the Lord has said that we should not have relations outside of marriage. It's... Well, it's so interesting how we can normalize so many things. Well, that's long gone. That's long gone. I mean, <laughs> if you don't live with someone, you know, before you're married, you're an idiot. That's where we're at today. You know? <laughs> yeah, uh, that that's just a mistake. You, know, but uh, or people who are engaged for or promise to be married, you know, for years and years and years, and there's no real intent on the person who should be initiating that to. Uh, to give a person a commitment and a comfort level. And yeah, marriage is always being portrayed as, you know, the old ball and chain. And what's interesting is the people that push these ideas and embrace it. A lot of them have a great deal of stability in their lives through marriage and a family. And yet they're the ones promoting these destructive behaviors that provide people with insecurity and fear and uh, emotional damage. It, it doesn't make any sense, but this is where we're at today. Yeah. Okay. Another woe, Sean, verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own view. Great sorrow will come to those who think they are clever and wise in their own mind. Many times I see types of this individual that use the cleverness and to put down others and to belittle others so that they themselves will feel lifted up and above them. And it makes me think of the verse in Doctrine and Covenants section 1 that um, this is verse 16, I just flipped to it. They, uh, meaning those who have strayed from the ordinances and broken the covenant, they seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way and after the image of his own God, whose likeness is in the likeness of the world, and whose substance is that of an idol, which waxeth old and shall perish in Babylon, even Babylon the great, which shall fall. 
So yeah, we can be wise in our own eyes. This makes us create our own idols, our own gods, which uh, we use to justify how we decide we want to live our lives. There's no objective standard, but there really are objective standards. There are standards of morality and standards of righteousness that the God, the Lord has set forth. And uh, this, this doesn't work. This, this is a, another woe leads to unhappiness. Yeah. Verse 22, <clears throat> woe to those who are val who, who are valiant at drinking wine and champions at mixing liquor. That's pretty funny to use the words valiant at drinking wine champions at mixing liquor. <laughs> yeah. And it comes back to the idea of addictions and it's really, this verse is quite straightforward that we just cannot have those things that are substituting our happiness and things by looking to these other things. I'd like to, let's see, I was going to see. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it reads, Woe to those who are mighty to drink wine and champions at mixing strong drink. So it's really not a whole lot worded differently so let me and that to me that again that's a proof that the translations that we have today in the bible are very faithful translations i wanted i like to bring out a story that i that happened to me when i was in law school we had a speaker come <clears throat> his name is uh was or i'm not sure if he's still alive his name was monroe mckay he was a judge on the 10th circuit court of appeals he was a friend of the byu law school and he came and spoke to us <clears throat> as students once or twice while I was there. And he was talking about the war on drugs. And this would be a great talk because the main talk was that we were being intellectually pickpocketed. And he made a great point about where this time was, was the war on drugs and how many freedoms we were losing because of this so-called war on drugs. Well, we've had many other wars and uh, and things that have happened that they have passed legislation and taken away more and more of our rights. But one of the things he said was the war on drugs, all this money and attention, he's pointed out to us. He said, he said, take all the drugs. And this may not be the case today, but it was then. He said, take all the illicit drugs that people are taking, the cocaine, the marijuana, the heroin. He said, take them all and put them into a pile. He said, he said, what alcohol does to families and people it's 10 times worse than all of that combined. And we don't focus on that. But here the Lord is pointing out, no, liquor, so alcohol is a real problem. It is a big problem. There's a tape I listened to back in the 80s that helped me understand things that I was seeing by Brother Black. And, uh, and I totally attest to these things are true, that when we partake of alcohol or drugs, that alter our mind, we are really opening the seal on our body and allowing a free fall of other spirits or people that once lived on the earth that still have those addictions when they die to enter our bodies and to try to relive their thirst and things for these desires by getting inside of our bodies. And through that, they are acting out when you're weak and when you can't control yourself and things their fantasies through you when you're inebriated here and so is it when i understood this and could see what was really happening it made me even more desirous to not let anybody have control over me in that way so in revelation 12 
And elsewhere, we know that Satan was cast out upon the earth along with his angels, a third of the hosts of heaven, on this earth. So I wonder where they get most of their, uh, you know, ability to tempt and afflict man. Is it near a, a church or a temple, or would it be in a bar? Yeah, that we have no idea the protection that we have from prayer, thinking about God, being close in, to God in many ways. This It's like an invisible bubble, and it gets stronger and stronger by the things that we do. Let's go to verse 23 now. <clears throat> Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. This is a verse that we really don't have to look too far today on the news and things we see great sorrow will come to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but they denied justice to the poor. We oh. see here in America, there's a two-tier justice system anywhere you look on the news. And the rich never have to pay the price for their sins unless they're a conservative thinker. <laughs> although, there, although it's being thinly veiled, there was a news report yesterday, just yesterday, how there is an IRS investigator who wants to obtain whistleblower status because during a following the rules of auditing they were targeting a person or persons that may have some tax issues and they were being not being treated the same as everybody else it was for political favors and being asked to by other superiors to not do that audit and he wants to come forward and explain the kind of uh, obstacles that are put up because this family or person is uh, got a lot of influence and is trying to prevent this this uh, in, uh, employee from doing his normal job. And it's because someone is stepping in and uh, trying to utilize this two tier of justice system, which we all see happening. But we also see that it can only go on for so long before it gets exposed. And we have lots of things being exposed. As the Lord says, they're going to shout these things from the rooftops. And a lot of this stuff is is starting to become uh, really apparent. Somebody once asked Carol and I, aren't you afraid of when our sins are shouted from the rooftops? And we laughed and we says, no, we already did that in our book, our book, <laughs> True Connection. And they were yes, kind of did. shocked, but uh, we really did lay it out on the line of how <laughs> we'd been away from God and we came back to God and we could see why we needed God closer to us. <laughs> Verse 24, as the blazing fire consumes stubble and as dry weeds wane before the flame, so shall their roots decay away, and their blossoms fly up like dust. For they have despised the law of Jehovah of hosts, and reviled the words of the Holy One of Israel. I'm going to read, because there's a few changes in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Therefore, as a tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as the dry grass sinks down into the flames, so their roots shall be as rottenness and their blossoms shall go up as dust, because they have rejected the law of Yahweh of armies and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. And this is so telling to me that as, um, you know, this 
tribulation comes upon us as these woes that we just talked about where we're given us this warning the great sorrow will come to that they burn like flames because they have rejected the law of yahweh of armies which probably need to go back sometime and translate uh, uh yehovah jehovah of host which when you come back to it is uh lord of the Sabbath or lord of god's armies uh, the direction of his armies but we also see right here that they despise the word of the Holy One of Israel. So we can see it out there around us that make fun of those for going to church, to spend their time going to church, that are trying to do good things. And they are more concerned about building themselves up and getting gained from this world and enjoying the bounties, you know, of this land to show that they're better than us. And right there, you just do not want to be one of those people lifted up in pride you know this verse in a, in a maybe in a strange way shows god's mercy because it isn't until they pat they show their outright despising of the law and the reviling of the words like complete rejection that the blazing fire consumes them i mean that that's a lot of patience uh, yeah. That's a lot of uh, giving a lot of time to show if we're a weed or if we are wheat, right? To weed yeah. the tares. And uh, it, it, to me, this shows the mercy, this shows the patience and, and the long suffering of the Lord. Verse 25, therefore, the anger of Jehovah is kindled against his people. He draws back his hand against them and strikes them. The mountains quake, and their corpses lie like litter about the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not abated. His hand is upraised still. Well, there you go. I was a, a verse too early <laughs> to make my point. <laughs> yeah, when you think about kindling a fire, it's when we're just starting the fire. It's not after the fire is roaring. It's the beginning little stages when it starts. And it signifies... That God's anger is just starting, that it's just getting going. And even though the fire once starts, he says, God draws back his hand and strikes the people for their wickedness. There will be many earthquakes and other diverse things which will cause people to die. And yet he says, now he says, his anger is not abated, meaning that he will again strike the wicked and rebellious people. Well, and, there's a twist in the book. Go ahead, sorry. You know, go ahead there, Craig. Well, I take it a little differently at the end. Uh, it, the Book of Mormon says his arm is still stretched out. He's still hoping, you know, in from what I the way I read it, his arm is stretched out still, or here his hand is upraised still. There's still a chance. There's still a chance. He he still is giving people. I mean, I know there's a limited chance, but if we go to the Book of Mormon, we read about, uh, I think it was Moroni. Moroni was preaching to the people. He refused to be their general when they decided to cross the line and go into the Lamanite territory and avenge themselves of all the blood that had been spilled. Because that was the one thing. They could push them out of their lands, but they couldn't go and... and uh, uh, for vengeance or to take land and once they did the spirit was lost <clears throat> and uh 
And there were times when uh, Moroni was not allowed to preach or talk about repentance or anything. And uh, he was, uh, the Lord forbear, forbear him to do it. And then later the Lord, uh, when they were getting their their lunch handed to him, they were, he was able to get back in there and help him as much as he could. But uh, there was, there did get a point where it was hopelessness, but for so long, there was still this chance that he was allowed uh, as a prophet and a soldier to try and, uh, you know, get people's attention. I'd like to read in the Dead Sea Scrolls version here of the last sentence of this verse. For all of this, his anger is not turned away, but his hands still stretched out. So I, I love that this puts more emphasis in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, out that his arms are open, welcoming, if you're ready to turn away from sin and turn to God. And um, that's why I love just going back and forth to all these verses to try to, versions, you know, translations, to try to get the deepest meaning we can from them. There's another sobering moment when, after the Savior is crucified and is in the tomb, in the in the new world, is three days of darkness. And at one point, they hear a voice from heaven say three things. One, how often have I gathered you, you know, as a hen gathereth her chicks? Um, how often would I, if you'd let me, and how often will I? And the people are just so sad. And this is um, this is what the Lord does. We, I, I'm sure, Sean, you could speak uh, volumes about how merciful the Lord is and how much no. he has held back. But it just can't be forever because the earth... I did a podcast while you were sick, and I did I, uh, and uh, I'm not going to be able to publish it because <laughs> I think I quoted from books that were copyrighted, so I really can't do it. But what I did find through that process of reading was how much the Lord um, loves us and cares about us, and He. But the problem is, is as the wickedness on the earth increases. This is what people like you have described who had near-death experiences. As the earth becomes more wicked on the face, the earth itself, which has a spirit, a female spirit, according to Moses, the book of Moses, uh, as, as, it, as the wickedness increases, the earth suffers more and more. And the Lord, Enoch has this conversation with the, with the earth, you know, or with the Lord. Lord, when will the earth rest? And then more stuff happens. Lord, when will you let the earth rest? Because the earth is groaning under all of this wickedness. Well, as the wickedness increases, it's the man versus man phase that I've discussed several times. The earth is given permission to begin to cleanse itself. And it won't have to tolerate this wickedness anymore. And so as the wickedness increases, so does the tumultuous uh, earthquakes, famines, disasters, volcanic activity, um, you know, I, did I say earthquakes, floods, famines, all these things are happening because the earth is also on a trajectory. And that is, it's going to become an exalted planet. It's going to become a celestial world. During the millennium, it will be in a terrestrial state. And the telestial forms of sin, adultery, murder, all those horrible sins that are described in the book, Dean Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, they're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. 
and the earth is going to have a breathing, a time to breathe from all this wickedness. It can't stand it. And so there's a direct correlation between what, what these tumultuous activities are and the sin that is being committed. And uh, it's it's another type of judgment that's going to come before the Lord brings his judgments, which are angelic in nature, which are, you know, interplanetary, frankly, uh, according to some of the accounts that I've read, where the earth is burned. Um, and uh, we know the burning's coming. Just go read Malachi chapter 4. Go read Malachi JST, or what Moroni told Joseph Smith when he appeared in Joseph Smith history, um, the way that Moroni quoted Malachi chapter 4. Okay, they that come yeah. shall burn them up and leave them neither root nor branch. This is what Isaiah, Isaiah touched on everything. That's what's beautiful about Isaiah. We're just, you know, we can go to any other verses and it ties back to the 66 chapters of Isaiah. It's all there. Um, anyway, I'm sorry to go I, off on that, but uh, I, I know you've seen the Lord's mercy. And when it finally comes to the point where he can't hold back anymore, he's he, he has... He has dunged, pruned, and grafted the branches in the vineyard to an extreme amount for millennia, trying to get <clears throat> and extract as much righteous fruit as he can. But eventually, the darn thing's got to get burned down. And that's just what has to happen. It's unfortunate. But we're going to have all the warning and all the time in the world we, we, ha we can to get right with God. And I think, I don't want to lengthen this too much, but um, I really can attest to this. You know, it's I, my wife left me at one point because of my addictions to pornography and other things, and she knew I had to be woken up. And I was awakened, and we did get back together after three months. But I, after we were together and we had healed and knew our marriage was now on track, I was just mourning and crying all the time going why could this happen for me and not for others and i just i was so sorrowful and distraught for months and months going why couldn't this be given to others and he finally and what was the difference and he finally said sean if you could only see you took one step forward and with that there were angels behind you that kept you from going backwards you had to take that one step forward and they were preventing you from falling backwards he says it's a choice i give everybody the choice that they can choose to take that little teeny step forward and then they're embraced by these angels that help keep them from falling backwards and no matter whether how far we go forward or how far we go backwards we can still have this embracing to support us So your mic is off there for a second, Craig. Um, in, in the book by Suzanne Freeman, uh, Through the Window of Life, she describes her near-death experience where she was inserted into a futuristic picture after the earth had gone through some tumultuous times. There'd been a, a long winter, uh, a rainy summer where nothing could grow, mud everywhere. But she describes more events that begin to happen. And one of the things she said during all these <clears throat> cataclysmic activities, earthquakes, uh, flooding, um, and everything, she said that the angels were standing there ready to assist. 
but nobody was praying. If they had just said, God, please help us, he could have, you know, made the earth crack a different place, made the lava flow a different direction, um, and spared or left enough items available to reconstruct after the disasters occurred. But because people were praying, the angels were silent. They couldn't do anything. They were bound by our ability and our willingness to reach out for help from God. You know, and this next verse, I think, is so beautiful in helping us to know that God is there waiting for us. Verse 26. He raises an ensign in to distant land. I'm sorry, let me start over. He raises an ensign to distant nations and summons them from beyond the horizon. Forthwith they come swiftly and speedily. We can see here that God announces, here is my ensign, the servant that will prepare the way for the Savior to come. The servant invites those of the world that want to live like Christ's disciples to come to this promised land, wherever, whichever side of the ocean you're on and these safe valleys, and together they can dwell as Zion-like communities, a haven from the tribulation of the world. Uh, you described it as peaceful valleys, and, and Suzanne Freeman has a whole chapter called Valleys of Peace, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, people, are, people have seen what you have seen. Yeah. Verse, verse 27, not one of them grows weary, nor does any stumble. They do not drowse or fall asleep. Their waist belts come not loose, nor their sandals, their sandal thongs undone. Uh, once again, we see in this structure that Isaiah uses going back and forth from the righteous viewpoint to the wicked viewpoint. And as first God is describing the king of Assyria's army that invades the promised land, they are not weary nor do they stumble. In essence, they do not slow down in their attack upon us until they reach God's Zion-like communities, and then God puts a stop to that. Next verses, 20 and 29. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows are strung. The tread of their war horses resembles flint. Their chariot wheels revolve like a whirlwind. They have the roar of a lion. They are aroused like young lions. Growling, they seize the prey and escape, and none comes to the rescue. In this verse, we see the king of Assyria's army is like a relentless beast upon the land. The only ones that are truly protected are those that have gathered, as the servant has suggested. It's just this army that he wants the protection. God's protecting hand is removed. There's nothing that can stop this invasion that comes upon the people to try and test them. This reminds me of 3rd Nephi chapter 21, which is quoting from the book of Micah. I believe it's chapter 5. I'm going to go to it real quick here and read similar tone and words. I think it's Micah 5.12. Let me look here. Yeah. Does this sound familiar? Again, this is all kind of like just commentary on isaiah <laughs> you know all of this in fact right. actually i should just say uh third nephi 21 is absolutely uh common the savior's commentary on the book of isaiah because he quotes isaiah then he says i'm going to explain it but listen to what it says here um oh it's 5 8 
And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if you go down, go through both, treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. Now you've pointed out this one here is the king of Assyria, but there's also references to a righteous branch uh, that you know will not be stopped. Kind of reminds me of the power that Enoch had uh, against the 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 evil armies. So. Yeah, it can be read both ways. Um, but once God gives power to his people, His uh, that they're led by the servant, <clears throat> and God develops this army, we'll see many references to the Old Testament and things where impossible things were done. There's just no way to stop God's army. But it all has to do with ripened in iniquity when there is... The people are ripened in iniquity, and they cast out the righteous from among them. And these people have gone into a safe haven and that's uh, dedicated and protected. And then when evil attacks those that are truly bound to him, then God stretches out his hand and overcomes the wicked. So basically, this is, we're going to read one more verse, but this is basically, um, this is the woe part. This is the cleansing part. This is the part when the Lord is uh, allowing judgment to come through his people in the vineyard who have not been prepared. And then after that, there's a remnant left, correct? Yeah, exactly. All right, last verse. He shall be stirred up against them in that day, even as the sea is stirred up. And should one look to the land, there too shall be a distressing gloom, for the daylight shall be darkened by an overhanging mist. In this verse, it shows how tirelessly the king of Assyria's army attacked those who did not gather. It is nonstop, day after day. The hope of those that didn't gather dims and becomes a faded light. And this can also be looked at in reverse, as once the God's army has been given power to go out, that this evading army, the king of Assyria's army, their hopes are dim because small numbers of men overcome thousands and they just don't know what to do because the power is so great and they know God is with them. You can see things like this in even more modern times with Joan of Arc and uh, the things that she did. And we can also see it with King David, with Jeremiah, with um, Gideon and many, many others. The daylight darkened by an overhanging mist that can be maybe metaphorical, but it's also literal. Again, the accounts that I was reading, there was so much warfare, uh, bombs exploding, nuclear war uh, that was uh, shown to these women, Sarah Manette, Suzanne Freeman, that there were just, there was volcanic activity. There were volcanoes where there had been, where they'd been dormant where there had never been a volcano volcanoes showed up all kinds of smoke we know what kind of smoke and chiroplastic flows of volcano a volcano can do uh there were buildings on fire nobody was putting out the fires this their black smoke hung in the sky darkening the sun and of course joel too says also the moon looks like blood so this is a time of uh great destruction and uh all preparatory I, to what's to come, the good stuff. I definitely saw a time period when uh, 
the smoke from the ash or the ash in the air was so great that no radio communications could get out, even to satellite or anything else. They were just completely isolated from leaders and everything because the ash was so thick that uh, radio signals didn't work. Mm. Three accounts said no electricity. Yeah. No communication. Yeah, so therefore no communication. You know, electricity, you can't communicate. You can't even do a smoke signal because there's already too much smoke in the air if you, yeah. if you knew how to do that. So, um, yeah, the Lord the Lord is, uh, this is all, you said this is all, just to recap, it's all during a, you see it being during a two-year period. Again, another, is that correct? Yeah, it is a two-year overview or window. And I, he, Isaiah does a lot of these through here and then he'll go into the next chapters or other parts and he'll really divide this up and give a detailed expl explanation of the overview within other chapters chapters 26 uh, starts out this way in a song that he preaches to his people and there's another a window or an overview of what's going to happen and then he goes into great detail uh, of within this period of time Again, I still see in this the Lord's mercy, because why? Because those who are listening will be warned. They will know where to go to be the safest possible. But there will still be shortages. There will still be suffering. But there will be survival. And the Lord mercifully keeps these things, the time frames, at a very small minimum. Two years, uh, three years, whatever the time frames are. These are relatively short periods of time. I mean, humans can't survive. If, if there are long periods of complete destruction, but these short periods will be enough to cleanse and to move on from there to the really, really good stuff the Lord has planned. So if we're prepared, we can make it through the tribulations. Uh, and uh, again, by listening to the Holy Spirit, we'll know where to be. If there's no communications, we can't turn on general conference, can we? We can't uh, get radio or satellite signals. We have to rely on our local uh, wisdom and uh, guidance from the Lord to know what we should do during these during these coming times. So it's really important to be as prepared as we can and to follow those promptings. There'll be, again, <laughs> President Nelson, in the coming days, it won't be possible to survive. Just look at those words alone without the Holy Ghost, which provides all these different things. He mentions four things. But Got to have the Holy Ghost. Why? Because the Lord's going to pull the plug generally, and it's going to result in chaos. And the earth is given permission finally, as Enoch sees, to cleanse itself. So uh, can't emphasize enough how, uh, Sean, your insight on these verses that the Lord's given you is really, really wonderful. Because these verses can, can read like, uh, you know, very confusing for the uninitiated i'm learning a lot from the things that the spirit and the lord has told you about them and it's tying in my brain is firing off on all the things i've read in other verses of scripture and elsewhere that uh help to flesh out the things that isaiah is talking about did you want to add anything no, else about this i think chapter? in a future podcast that we ought to go over my detailed memories of the war and taking back the nation in the first big war um kind of like we did with the december raid because i have a lot of detailed memories or visions of that time period that i think would help people to understand more of the power of god's army 
Okay. Well, at a time and place appropriate, we look forward to hearing from you on that. That's great. Thank you, Greg. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us. This is Vision of Zion. We've just finished Isaiah 5. We'll come back again to the microphones for more on, is it Isaiah 6 next, Sean? Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye now.